Welcome to the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. I'm Giannis Papadakis, Business Development Manager at Crexy and today's host. Each episode, the Crexy team dives into a broad range of topics and conversations with featured experts to investigate trends, educate listeners, and understand the latest industry news in commercial real estate. As the nation's fastest growing online CRE platform, we're excited to provide a window into the inner workings of commercial real estate for this generation and the next. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. I'm your host, Giannis Papadakis, Business Development Manager at Crexy. And today we are thrilled to sit down with Julie Baird. Before we dive in, a little bit about our guest. Julie Baird is the president of First American Exchange Company, a national qualified intermediary owned by First American Title Insurance Company. Julie first joined First American Exchange in 2006 and has previously served as national counsel and Western regional manager. Julie has been involved in all phases of the 1031 exchange business, including business development, negotiation of documentation, management and oversight of reverse and built-to-suit exchange transactions, and the facilitation of underwriting decisions. Julie is the immediate past president of the Federation of Exchange Accommodators and is past director for Crew Denver. She is a frequent speaker and author on 1031 Exchange and industry-related topics. She is also a former chair of the executive committee of the Real Property Law Section of the State Bar of California, and she is the prior managing editor of the California Real Property Journal. In 2009, Julie was named one of the top 20 under 40 real estate professionals by the Commercial Real Estate Women Network crew. Prior to joining First American, Julie was a real estate attorney in private practice in San Francisco. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Giannis, thanks so much. It's really great to be here, and I really appreciate that warm introduction. Um, what an impressive career uh, that you have led. Um, tell me you're an overachiever without telling me you're an overachiever. Um, <laughs> it's really uh, wonderful to have you on. Uh, I know the 1031 exchange process can be daunting to people that have never been through it before, uh, and you've mastered it. So we're really excited to have you. It's a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to the conversation and uh, talking through kind of what we're seeing on the 1031 side in the industry and anything, any other questions you might have on your mind. Well, let's start with your journey on how you got into this industry in the first place. You know, why commercial real estate? Yeah, great question. So I started my professional career practicing law in San Francisco in 2001. And there I worked bankruptcy and litigation, and it wasn't really until I worked on my first real estate deal that I thought, okay, actually, I, I maybe I like being a lawyer. This, this might be okay. And I really enjoy real estate because it's generally a lot less contentious. People are working towards the same outcome, the same goal. And it's really pretty cool when you can point to an actual building or a project that you've worked on and help create. So I learned a ton about real estate transactions and private practice. So purchase and sale agreements, leasing, financing, closings. And these skills really carried over when I started with First American's 1031 Exchange Division as in-house counsel for them in 2006. And then when the Great Recession hit, our business was devastated, just like so many. And so I transferred over to the title company side to our National Commercial Services underwriting team in San Francisco. And I was there for a few years where I learned a lot more about underwriting distressed assets and ensuring foreclosure sales. 
I did leave the title industry for a couple of years. I worked in the house council for a nonprofit. And then for family reasons, I relocated from the Bay Area to Denver in about 2015. And when I made that move back to Denver, I actually came back to First American and to the 1031 team as national counsel for them. And once I was here, I saw we had a business need to open an office in Denver. We were doing a ton of Colorado deals, but we just didn't, we didn't have a local presence. So we were missing out on a lot of opportunities here. So I offered to open an office and First American supported that direction. So I got to work, I hired a team that taught me a ton about hiring and running a business and managing a P&L. It also taught me how terrible I am at sales. <laughs> Nothing like opening an office to quickly show you your strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but this started me down my, my sort of management path. And I eventually transitioned into leading our Western region, which at the time was 13 states. And then I was tapped for my current role in June of last year. And I really love the management, the leadership side of the business. I have a fantastic engaged senior leadership team. And this really allows me the ability to think creatively about growing our business and about building and cultivating our teams. That's so interesting because you've had to wear so many different hats, you know, that have led you to your, you know, current, you know, position and role. Um, I'm wondering who were some of your mentors and how did they help shape that path? Yeah, great question. There are two people that immediately come to mind for me with that question. The first is Sally French Tyler. Sally is the executive vice president of First American Title and the group president of the company's residential and commercial title operations. She's a strong, inspirational female leader within First American and really within the greater commercial real estate world. And in addition to her exceptional business results, Sally worked with First American to launch our Women in Leadership program, which just celebrated its 10th anniversary this year. And I feel really privileged to be an alumni of that program. And I'm lucky enough to call Sally my boss and watching and learning from her has been just a fantastic learning experience. And then the second person is Mary Kay Kennedy and who was my direct boss when I first started at First American back in 2006. Mary Kay was also a real estate attorney in the Bay Area at the time. And she introduced me to professional organizations and really encouraged me to get involved, which allowed me to have leadership opportunities and grow my professional network in a way that I just hadn't really been able to do before. And Mary Kay always supported my career path, even when it meant leaving her division. And then also when it meant coming back to the company again, when I moved to Denver. Awesome. So what were some of the lessons that you learned early on that really became invaluable going forward? From a career standpoint, I would say if you see a business need, propose an idea to solve it. Your employer and your manager should support you and ideally give you the resources to help. For example, I saw a business need to open our Denver office and the company really supported that move for me. And as a leader, the best advice I've received is from a leadership coach that I've been working with the last couple of years. And she always asked me a couple of really great questions. What's the ideal outcome? How do you want to show up? And how do you want the audience to receive you? These questions always help me frame up any meeting and any conversation that I'm entering into. That's great advice, really for anybody in any role. Now let's dive a little bit deeper and talk a little bit more about the role that your company plays in the industry as a whole. Could you explain more about what First American Exchange Company does and its role in the commercial real estate transaction? Yeah, of course. So I'll start with kind of a basic overview. Section 1031 is a federal tax code provision, and it allows taxpayers to sell and then buy replacement real estate and defer the payment of capital gains tax that otherwise would have been due on that sale. So instead of sell selling an asset and then having to pay tax on that gain, either out of the proceeds or out of pocket, 
you can instead roll that money into the next property. In order to complete a 1031 exchange, there's a series of rules that have to be followed. And generally speaking, you have to engage a third party called a qualified intermediary or a QI. That QI prepares the necessary 1031 exchange documents that have to be signed before the closings and then holds the money between the sale and the purchase transactions. So that's what we do. First American Exchange is a qualified intermediary. So we prepare the 1031 exchange documents, we hold the money, and then of course we help the client along the way to understand the rules and the timelines as we go. And how much would you say does education play as a role into what your company does? Why is it so important? Yeah, education is huge. So the 1031 exchange tool has actually been around for over 100 years, but there are still plenty of investors and real estate agents and even financial advisors that either don't know about the tool or just don't know all of the rules associated with it. It's a really rule intensive tax code provision and you have to follow the steps really closely. So things like how much time do you have to identify replacement property? Do you have to be in contract? How much time to complete the exchange? What if I don't use all my money? Can I trade out of state? And the list goes on. So the bulk of what our teams do every day is to help navigate these rules and answer these questions for our clients. Got it. Would you say that there are some common pitfalls or, or maybe things that are common that people misunderstand about 1031 exchanges and, and what would they be? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. And the worst uh, pitfall is when a client closes us after they've already closed on the sale of their property. Once they close the transaction and they're in receipt of the proceeds, it's too late actually to set up a 1031 exchange. So the biggest lesson to take away from is if you're going to sell investment property and you're interested in an exchange, get the information and find out and make that decision before closing because there's documents that have to be signed. We have to be assigned into the transaction and then we have to receive the money. So that's kind of the biggest. And then, you know, there's other little trip ups along the way. There's limited time to identify replacement property. There's timelines as to when you have to complete the transaction. So just making sure you're working with a professional that can help you along every step of the way so that you Avoid those landmines as much as you can. Got it. Julie, could you tell me what exactly is a build-a-suit exchange? I've heard of a reverse exchange, um, but I've never heard of a build-a-suit exchange. Could you actually touch on both of those? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with a reverse exchange because the structures of the two are actually quite similar. So a reverse exchange is a 1031 exchange structure that is set up when a client either needs to or wants to close on their replacement property, their purchase property, before they're able to sell their relinquished property. And because of the way the 1031 rules work, if the client actually goes out and buys that property and closes on it, they're sort of foreclosed from the opportunity of trading into it at that point, because now they're on title to it. So instead, they will engage a QI who actually steps into their shoes and goes on title to that replacement property on their behalf. And we hold title for them for up to 180 days until they can get that relinquished property sold and then buy the replacement property from us who've been holding it on their behalf. If there are rules and complications related to that, the biggest being the money. We don't put any money into the deal to buy that replacement property. So the client has to have the cash or a cooperative lender in order for that structure to work, but it can be a really great tool. And then the build the suit exchange works in a very similar way. So a build a suit exchange is when a client has more exchange funds that they want to use towards that replacement property to do improvements, typically some sort of capital improvement project on that replacement property. Ground up construction is also an option, but that's tricky with the timelines. 
Again, once the client's on title to that replacement property, any funds that they put into the property no longer get the tax deferred treatment. So the structure is very similar in that we step into the shoes of the client, we buy that replacement client property on behalf of the client and we hold title to it. And the client's able to use exchange funds to do capital improvements to the property while we're holding title to it. And then at day 180 or whenever before then, if they're completed with the project, they will receive the replacement property at the increased value. So their initial acquisition price plus the cost of the improvements that were constructed during that exchange period. Also a really good tool. It can be tricky to, to fall within the 180 day timelines and things like that, but um, definitely great options for doing some improvements on distressed assets. Excellent. All right. Yeah, I I'd never heard. I didn't even know that was possible. Um, uh, so that's interesting. Wow, it really does. You really do have kind of some unique tools depending on like what the client's you know end goal uh, really is. Um, it's it's great to know that it's not just you know cut and dry. This is one way. Um, also, I, I do have a quick question too. Did the definition of like, uh, you know, like property like like, uh, did, did that shift recently or in the last 10, 15 years or so? Great question. So the definition of a like kind for real estate didn't really change. Some clarifying rules were put forth that sort of created some structure around it. But basically, any type of real estate is going to be like kind to another type of real estate interest. A pretty dramatic change that happened to the code was back as in 2017 as part of the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and the ability to do 1031 exchanges with personal property was removed from the tax code. So it is strictly a real estate tool now, but that definition of like kind for real estate is quite broad. Any interest in real estate is gonna be like kind to any other interest in real estate. Got it, okay. From a leadership perspective, what is most important to you about growing your company? What do you prioritize? I prioritize our people and our culture. We are absolutely focused on growth and becoming the market leader, but I want to do it in a way that really honors our current and our future teams. We're always looking for ways for our people to feel valued, so to participate in initiatives and contribute ideas, and for ways that provide growth opportunities for those teams. And I'm really proud of First Americans People First Culture and our recognition as one of the 100 best companies to work for and great places to work in Fortune Magazine for the seventh consecutive year. It's a really great accomplishment and we really try to live by those values. And what are some of the biggest challenges that the company faces right now? Yeah, like every business, we've got external challenges and internal challenges. The external factors that we can't really control, but we really need to pay attention to are certainly market forces, right? So the increase in interest rates, a potential recession, oh, excuse me, let's start over there. <laughs> market forces. So the increase in interest rates or you know, potential recession are certainly a slowdown in deal volume. There's global unrest, there's war in Ukraine and potentially other conflicts. There's legislative risk always to 1031 that could change the tax code or the role that the Q QI is obligated to play in those transactions. And of course, another pandemic or a health or climate related disaster. We just had a major hurricane in Florida that significantly impacted a few people on our team. Mm -hmm. And these events can be really destructive and certainly disruptive to our people and our clients and to our business. And then on the internal side, we're really paying attention to the need to grow in a thoughtful way, way a way that keeps us connected to our people and to our culture. And then we need to pay attention to and adapt to changing technology and customer expectations. Those are always changing and we just need to stay ahead of what those expectations look like. Absolutely. What are some of your leadership goals for the next five years as president? 
One of the goals that I'm working on with my leadership team is actually defining what leadership looks like for us. We're really working together as a team to define it and then develop those metrics to measure how we're doing and then ultimately determine how we incentivize and reward the behaviors that we've identified as important. I think oftentimes our success or our compensation is tied to metrics that may not fully indicate whether we're not whether or not we're successful leaders, right? And whether or not we're growing our next generation of leaders and modeling the best behavior. So I want our team to work together to define it mm-hmm. so that we're all on the same page with respect to how we're leading and how we're growing together. Can you share some ways or some examples of ways you're measuring success? It's a great question. And we're still developing what those metrics look like. I think success for us will be sustainable growth and successful succession planning of our leaders. We haven't quite identified what that looks like exactly, but I think if we can look back in three or five years from now and say that we grew in a sustainable way and that we grew our teams in a way that was meaningful and profitable for the company, then I think we've been successful. Can you speak uh, a little more to the historic significance of the tax code and what it's meant for commercial real estate and the 1031? Sure. So like-kind exchanges are really critical for removing friction in the real estate transaction. So particularly commercial real estate transactions and assets that may have to be repositioned or repurposed or post-pandemic times here. So these are assets like office buildings and hotels. If an owner knows they're going to have a tax burden, their incentive to sell or even their incentive to remodel or improve the property and increase its value just becomes less. So a tax burden would certainly impact pricing, and then that would impact inventory. So removing that friction really helps capital flow the most efficiently where it's the most needed. And then pending any government changes, how is the market taking advantage of the 1031 exchange, particularly in a post-pandemic economy? I would say that we are seeing assets being able to be repurposed, as I mentioned, and sort of repositioned in this post-pandemic environment. Obviously, the interest rate uh, changes here over the last few months have impacted some of that deal flow. So it remains to be seen what the next four to six months look like. And you'd mentioned something, you know, that there's obviously, you know, awful, you know, devastating weather that, you know, hits the country every once in a while, you know, what happens when, you know, an event like that gets in the way of a transaction? You know, if let's say you're exchanging into a property that's in Florida and it was, you know, hurt by the hurricane, you know, what does, are you out of luck? You still have to buy that property to complete your exchange. What, what's, I mean, let's use some, some live examples of kind of, you know, what people can expect. Yeah, absolutely. And the hurricane obviously being the most recent live example that we have, and we were just talking with our teams yesterday in those kinds of circumstances, the IRS will declare a federally declared disaster area and they will issue a notice to impacted communities. In this particular case, the entire state of Florida is included in that description. And those taxpayers are afforded certain kinds of tax relief and filing relief, uh, relief related to their deadlines and things like that. Oftentimes in those declarations, the 1031 exchange deadlines are extended. So typically they get extended to at least 120 days out from when they should have expired, sometimes a little bit longer, depending on how the notice is written. So that allows folks to maybe re-identify potential replacement properties. It gives them that extra time to close. So it does provide some level of flexibility. Of course, buyers and sellers are all going to be in unique you know, set of circumstances based on what has happened. Uh, but at least the IRS is aware that those those kinds, these kinds of disasters really impact these transactions and some relief has to be provided. 
do you actually have to be under contract um, for your upleg property in that disaster area? Or if you identify a property, maybe you're, you still haven't closed your downleg um, and you've already identified a property and you're expecting to close, do you still get that extension time? It depends on the unique circumstances of your transaction. So it depends on when your sale date of your downleg or your, your relinquished property happens in relationship to the designation of the disaster. In many situations, we've got exchangers who have sold their property, so they're in the middle of their exchange timelines, and maybe they've identified certain properties in Florida, and one or more of those properties were destroyed. If they get an extension, if they're still within their 45 days when that disaster hits, they'll get an extra 120 days to identify different types of properties so that they are not obligated or stuck with those properties that they identified that may have been destroyed in the disaster. Interesting. Okay, let's uh, speed along on to our third topic. Actually, sorry, before we get there, um, can you speak to the importance of keeping the 1031 exchange code intact? Yeah, absolutely. This has been a hot topic for us for the last several years as the 1031 exchange as a tool has been debated on Capitol Hill. So First American Exchange belongs to an industry association called the Federation of Exchange Accommodators or the FEA. And the FEA spearheaded a couple of separate economic studies, one through EY and one through a couple of professors named Ling and Petrova. Both of those studies can be found on the FEA's website at 1031.org. And these studies quantified actually the economic benefit of 1031 exchange transactions. So it's really significant. Uh, For example, in 2021 alone, 1031 exchange transactions together with US suppliers and related consumer spending were estimated to have supported 976,000 workers. So that equates to over $48 billion in wages and benefits and contributed to generating over $97 billion in added value to the GDP. So these numbers are super impressive. And really any detrimental changes to 1031 would impact this kind of numbers and these, this type of economic activity. Got it. It would have a chilling effect in, in the entire sector, really. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, I'd, I'd love to zoom out a little bit and talk about current market happenings, and especially with your unique, unique insights into the 1031 exchange-related transactions. What trends uh, are standing out to you the most in the world of the 1031 exchange right now? I think the biggest trend that we've seen over the last couple of years is an increase in transactions involving single family investment properties. This was always an important segment in our business for sure, but over the last few years, this grew to over 50 and sometimes over 60% of the types of transactions we were seeing, particularly in the Sunbelt states and then also sort of the vacation Zoom town phenomenon. We saw a lot of folks moving their investment properties to those locations. Got it. So would you say that there are any types of assets that are typically relinquished for single tenant assets? Like I know personally, you know, back when I was wearing my broker hat, we were doing a lot of multifamily owners into single tenant net lease properties. Um, are, are you seeing that still? I know that, you know, the office market has taken a pretty devastating hit since COVID. Are you seeing a lot more people exchanging out of offices and, and what are they buying? Yeah, it's a great question. We are seeing some folks exchange out of office. And I would say multifamily is still a very hot asset class. Industrial certainly is strong, particularly in some markets. And diversifying into the single family rental homes in the Sunbelt states, we're seeing folks diversify out of commercial into residential in some respects. 
We certainly see interest in the Delaware Statutory Trust investment vehicle as a replacement property option. It's just gives some folks some certainty about what they're gonna identify and trade into. We saw a lot of that activity when inventory was so tight and it was hard to meet the 1031 exchange timeline requirements. Interesting. So let's first um, talk about the impact that interest rates have had um, in the marketplace as it pertains to uh, you know, demand for and you know, pricing of single family you know, portfolios. Sure. I mean, the single family market was impacted so strongly by this sort of COVID surge of investor demand and certainly also as folks looking for their primary residence. So I think that investor demand, now we've got increasing interest rates are really putting pressure on affordability in the single family home market. I think it's going to be interesting to watch over the next few months here as we watch interest rate trends, what happens with that affordability meter, it's we still are undersupplied, I think, from a housing perspective. So there's always going to be demand there. The question is, how do we make sure that that folks can still afford to buy a home to live in? Right. And then would you say that that, you know, kind of institutional investors entering into that single family home space, you know, how is that competing with multifamily uh, and affecting you know, that market as well? Yeah, I think both impacted definitely. And the the our large institutional investors coming into the single family home market is definitely another factor that's that's impacting this this sort of affordability factor that we're talking about. And I think as the smaller investors look towards residential investment, it's getting harder for them to compete for those single family homes. So might be moving to more of a multifamily, maybe they get a duplex or a three or four plex in a different market. Um, again, demand for housing, I think, is still very, very strong. So both the single family home and the multifamily sector are both still seeing really pretty strong uh, returns. Now, we have a couple of rapid fire words of advice questions to tap into your expertise and in industry outlook. Uh, what is your favorite tool or software that you use on the job? God, am I dating myself if I say pen and paper? No. <laughs> As long as the pen isn't a giant feather. (laughs) Deal. Um, I'm I'm really visual, um, especially like with my lists and writing helps me retain information. So it's old school, but I have yet to find a replacement that works as well. As a business, we also use Domo and Salesforce and other tracking tools to give us data on our business, which obviously are critical to figuring out where our business is coming from and how we grow. All right. What's the most common misconception about what you do or the industry that you work in? I think a lot of people would be surprised at how dynamic and innovative we are at First American, as well as the industry in general. You know, we work in the tax code and sort of this financial services industry, which is seen as pretty stoic and stated. Our focus is really on our people, and that affords us this ability to be creative about finding growth opportunities and innovation opportunities, including building and investing tools that help our people and help our customers. I think that's why a big reason, or that is a big reason why First American is a leading innovator in its market segment. Excellent. Uh, Any podcasts that you would recommend in the space of commercial real estate or business or leadership or really whatever? Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, the Crexy podcast obviously is um, at the top of that list. <laughs> uh, I really like to listen to like Brene Brown and Simon Sinek. Is that his name? We gotta. We'll have to retape. I got one of his books here. 
Oh, okay, great. Because that's my next question. But <laughs> book, books, you know, any great books that, that, you know, you recommend for somebody that's entering the space or that, you know, have left a, a real positive mark on you? Yeah. Uh, gosh, a lot. I've, I've been sort of a, a leadership book junkie. Carla Harris is certainly a great resource. She also has a great podcast. She's had a couple great books. Um, again, Brene Brown, just about authentic leadership. Those, those have been very meaningful to me. Adam Grant, uh, gosh, a couple of good books from him. Those are sort of my go-to. Okay. And this is a little out of left field. We're shooting this. It's October. We're getting close to Halloween. Uh, I'd like to hear a 1031 horror story. Um, you know, was there a transaction where it was just like, oh my gosh, like nothing can possibly go wrong. And then something I, I just, I want you to hit me with whatever the, the, what you would tell a junior associate about, you know, a transaction to kind of spook them. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a question. Um, well, 1031 being that it's the tax code provision and also the date of Halloween, it is sort of our unofficial holiday. So gosh, you know, you've been in this business long enough, you see a, a myriad of a parade of horribles sometimes. I don't know if I've got one particular deal that stands out the most for me, but I do actually remember a particular situation where a client needed his funds back after the expiration of exchange period and he needed a check delivered that day. And I had to meet him at a very sketchy gas station to bring him his money. And it was like a Friday night. It, it was just all of the things that you know you shouldn't do. And it was, you know, you really ask yourself, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, so I would advise the associates to not do that and just send a wire. <laughs> but hey, th that goes to show you how above and beyond, you know, with service First American Exchange Company will go. They will meet you in a clandestine gas station in the middle of night with a check if they have to. It's <laughs> in a paper bag. Just don't, don't ask for it, though. They don't like to do it, but if they have to, they will. That's right. That's right. Um, what advice would you give to newcomers or developing professionals in your industry? Oh, gosh. I think the advice really is if you see a need, fill it. Or if you have an idea, share it and say what you think and say why you think it might solve a current problem. I think as leaders, we're always, we're always looking for people to come to us with new ideas or new innovation or new ways to support an issue that, that might exist. And we'll definitely try and find the resources and provide the support that you need if we can. It may take some time. You know, sometimes we don't move as quickly as we can, but we'll definitely do what we can and, you know, be patient. Um, but regardless of its success, it's a way to differentiate yourself and to grow and learn. Um, be curious, ask questions. Oftentimes we do things out of inertia and just having someone ask why we're doing something can really change the way we think about an issue and make us think about solutions in new ways, which is always a good thing. Excellent. Are there any parting words that you want to share with our audience? Gosh, just thank you again for the opportunity to be here and talk with you and share a little bit with your audience. Uh, from a business perspective, I'd say if somebody's thinking about or curious about a 1031 exchange, get a QI involved early so that you can get lined up and get prepared for the transaction with plenty of time. There's plenty of rules to navigate and knowing all of those up front can really help uh, smooth out the transaction. And I guess from a personal standpoint, we're a few days from Halloween. So I hope everyone has a, a happy, safe Halloween celebration. And we're getting, again, it's 1031 day. So it's our national holiday. So celebrate accordingly. 
That's right. That's right. Everybody, you know, do what you're supposed to do on Halloween, which is start a 1031 exchange. So this year is the year if you haven't done it yet, you know, you, you feel free to do so. Um, Julie, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. I know you're very busy and we really appreciate you spending the time to sit down with us. Thank you again for the opportunity, Honest. It was a real pleasure talking with you and thanks to all the Crexy team. Um, it was a real honor to be a part of this program. Ah, the honor is mine. And where can people find you online if they want to get in touch? You can find First American Exchange online at www.firstexchange.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss the next one. Visit go.crexy.com slash podcast. That's go.crexy.com forward slash podcast and sign up to get the very next episode delivered straight to your inbox. You can also subscribe to the Crexy podcast on your favorite podcast app or check out our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash Crexy for video recordings of each episode. Goodbye, stay well, we'll see you next time.